growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair. Revenue solves everything. Welcome to the cheat code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Cheat Code. I am Josh Wagner alongside Justin Gray. You know, in the B2B SaaS world, when you hear the word evangelist, sometimes it makes you tilt your head, squint your eyes and be like, what the hell does that even mean? So today we've brought one of the original chief evangelists. We brought Jill Rowley. She's an original employee at Salesforce, Eloqua, has investments across the B2B tech landscape. And Joe, we're really excited to have you here and talk a little bit about evangelism and what that means. Thanks for joining. What does that mean? Yeah, I ask myself often, what does that mean? But here, here's, here's what I'll start with is I am an accidental, unintentional evangelist. <laughs> I never sought out to become uh, an evangelist of B2B SaaS, an evangelist of marketing automation, an evangelist of MarTech as a category. Um, I never sought out to be an evangelist of social selling or an evangelist of ecosystems, partner ecosystems and communities. Like These are not things I said intentionally, I want to be an evangelist. The evangelism comes from really deep industry expertise the experience, the knowledge, the network of, of being in this, this market. Um, I, I, I really enjoy being at the front end of the development of a new market, sometimes referred to as category creation, category definition, um, category evangelism. Um, but, it, but it's this visionary thinking around there's a better way to do the things that we are doing today and identifying what that better way to do these things are. It's the ability to build community, right? To, to, to get people to join in the movement, to get them to have this aha or this oh shit moment. It's very collaborative. Um, you have to enjoy like reading a lot, listening to a lot of podcasts. You have to enjoy uh, educating folks. You have to be insatiably curious. Uh, there's collaboration that's required. There's a whole lot that goes into being an evangelist, a category evangelist. And I, I just over time, those are those are the things that that I am and that shaped into this this accidental, unintentional role of an evangelist. So it's a long list of of things that I think we would all say like those are awesome thing and in these days almost like hey everyone wants to be doing those things i think what's interesting about your story is like but you were a sales rep right like you don't associate well and we still don't today sadly but like you don't associate a lot of those things with someone who's in sales right and i think that's what what makes all of that even more interesting is the fact that you know i mean you you set out to, to do something which is you know meet a quota you know you're carrying a bag so kind of what led you down that that path? Obviously, like the desire to to you know create bookings and and sell things, but that's a that's a, a lot of, of work to go through. Yeah, uh, it 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 definitely was a lot of time spent not um in my funnel, 
right? Not spent um, optimizing my conversion rates from inquiry to lead to qualified opportunity to uh, proposal to negotiation. It's a lot of time outside of that funnel. And the reason I spent a lot of time outside that funnel was because my buyers and my customers had no desire to be in my funnel. And so how do I be where my buyers are, right? How do I be where they're learning, um, where they're connecting? I, I say, yes, I was an incredible individual quota carrying salesperson, sales rep of the year, always went to president's club. But what I'm most proud of is really the, the, the sending my customers onto the stage to win their awards, right? It's I'm most proud of working with customers who then went on to get promotions, who went on to other companies, greater opportunity. Uh, a lot of the, the, the folks that I worked with early days of Eloqua, they are chief marketing officers today. That is, gives me goosebumps. Crazy. It's so rewarding when you can help other people reach their promised land, achieve their goals, be recognized within their companies and in their industries. That's like, that's what really drives me. And so, yes, you know, that short term, I got to make the number totally every day, every deal in my pipeline. What, what can I do to help this buyer, the buying committee, be able to get closer to being ready to actually say yes and deploy my software? So who are the partners that I need to bring in that can help them? Who are the analysts or the subject matter experts, the consultants? Who are the, 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 the successful customers of ours that look like them? Um, it was always about like, what can I do to help that buyer get closer, actually become a customer and be successful on the customer journey? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that what you're describing is a concept I call pipeline for life. Uh, you might call it customer centricity, uh, a lot of different things. But, you know, if you think about how companies go to market these days and you think about what sales leaders are teaching sales reps none of what you described is in the enablement plan, right? It's product focused, it's metric focused, it's activity focused. How do we change that? I mean, what do you see being the uh, catalyst for change? I've been on this quest, this crusade from like, I think when I first got into sales in 2000 at Salesforce, I because I wasn't a trained sales professional uh, in the beginning, which I guess nobody is. Do those uh, exist? Those yeah. Nobody went to school for sales, yeah. Actually, more and more going to school for sales. And I love it. Even it's in today, Wahoo, my alumni, um, in the McIntyre School of Commerce, which is the undergraduate business school, there are, there are courses on sales. They're not really calling it sales yet but it is teaching the foundation of professional selling. So we are seeing more and more universities 
say, oh, you go to school for marketing, you go to school for computer science, but how about when there's millions of sales professionals in the world and to get a customer, it takes sales. So anyway, don't get me started. So, so Jill, I, I mean, like in that spirit of, of, you know, how do we create this change? What were people doing when you started to do these, these motions and, and what was the reaction to that? Cause I think, you know, the shortest path to creating change in any area is someone looking around and saying that person's doing this, they're successful at it. It's kind of that, you know, you always want to sit with who's the best rep and, and mirror what they're doing. Right. But like, I, I doubt any of this was taking place when you started out. Right. So I'm curious to see what the reaction from, you know, the, the other sellers in the org from, from leadership at that point, what, what, what did they think? So I will say that when I actually started as a rep at Salesforce, I did what I think great sellers do, which was I listened to the great sellers at Salesforce. And uh, we all sat in a room together and you couldn't not hear the other sellers. Um, and I figured out who, you know, one, number one and number two, and I, I shadowed them. I learned from them. I listened to the questions that they would ask. I um, looked at the research that they would do and uh, the, the confidence that they had in the conversation. Um, so I, I do think that they exist. Uh, and then very quickly, that was what was happening to me at Salesforce in terms of listening into my conversations. I was doing a new hire onboarding at Salesforce within the first 12 months of, of being there. It, it was recognized and I, 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 you know, and then I, I, I've worked with sales leaders who say we want every rep to be like Jill and they realize that, that, that just isn't going to happen, right? There's, there's something special. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you the truth of what I've heard over the course of my career but there's something special of uh, you know about salespeople who have this conviction, who have this mindset of I want to both be successful as an individual. I want to crush my number. I want to go to President's Club. Uh, I want to make fat commission checks. Uh, I want to be recognized in my organization. But at the same time, they won't they won't sacrifice uh, the customer experience uh, to get to those short term goals. They will think long-term about relationships and their reputation, and they'll understand uh, the trust that is required to be successful long-term in business. Well, let's shift that focus a, a little bit towards, you know, founders and scaling startups, because, you know, that's a, a big part of this audience. And I know a place where you live a lot right now, and that evangelist oftentimes is that founder, right? Who's out there taking this stuff to market, banging the drum just going out and trying to acquire customers. How do they start to instill that into those early sales teams? Because we're looking for ways to accelerate, go to market. You hit that inflection point. It can't just be you. I, I agree. And I actually think a lot of founders, uh, the evangelism doesn't necessarily come naturally to them. Mm. They, they can be very um, subject matter expert and they can be very um, knowledgeable about the product, the company, the category. Uh, but they 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 might not have that then personality and that comfort level of uh, being out there, being out there in social networks, being out there at conferences, uh, maybe probably not expert at writing content, 
uh, unless they come from a, you know, a marketing or, or, or sales background. But we know that a lot of founders actually come from the product background. And so this is where we've seen a lot of services, uh, maybe they're individuals or agencies that help that founder be able to craft that narrative, craft that story, to be able to get comfortable in uh, building their personal brand. And it's not for personal brand sake, it's for being able to get the message out more broadly. So, so I think it, it, it's really important for the, the stories and not the emphasis on the product. And then ultimately, it's oftentimes an early hire that then carries that 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 they're they're very similar to the founder in terms of their entrepreneurial. They look across the organization. They look across the whole market. Uh, and so you 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 need one or two of those. Uh, an example would be Camille Trent at Keyplay. Keyplay is a software company, but really it started out as a community. Uh, Peer Signal is the community. And I love this new model that we're seeing where build a community, do that through content and data uh, that's informative and interesting and relevant and build the product in community, kind of like in the background based on what you're hearing from that community. There is a new profile of uh, early hire within an organization and then modeling the rest of your team to not be doing the call, email, call, email, but generate a lead and toss it over. Um, there is this, this maturation, this change, this movement that is, is happening. It's just not happening fast enough. Well, I think one of the things that always happens when you've got, you know, a new type of role like this or or just you know a, a fundamentally new motion people look at it and they start to grab individual tactics or what they kind of view as as a specific tactic and i think one of those is kind of this rise of of well and you know it's been around for a bit now but like still if people are making that first hire i think the tendency is like i need to find someone who is an influencer within this space you know that, that they create a ton of content and people look to them they've got all these subscribers and so on i'm curious to get your take on on kind of that influencer label and and uh you know the this desire for a lot of companies to to bring one of those in house and thinking it's going to create this type of success uh, i think less about the influencer influencer and more about the influence uh, the, the influencer, you can bring someone in that has a network and that is known, um, but you want to really understand what is, what is their network? What are they known for? Is it relevant? Does do the values align to the organizational values? I, I, I think the bringing in the, the influencer early I, I I don't I don't I don't know like I I I've changed my my view on influencers to thinking less about hiring that person to do webcasts with you or to promote your content and more about who actually has the authentic influence 
And then also, I don't know if we're ready to, to even talk about it, but I see this trend away from influencers and to creators. And what's the difference in your mind between those those two? The The creators are people who are in your community who are oftentimes users of your product who are creating templates. Uh, let's just use templates as an example. They're creating templates, Notion and Figma. These are great examples. We're going to see this a lot in AI companies as well. We can already see with prompts, right, in packaging up different prompts for different use cases in AI. But the creators are people who are literally like using your product and, and creating things and being willing to share those things with the broader community. There's a different level of trust. And for sure. And I think that that companies who figure out ways to add value to the creator in terms of they get compensated for what they create that then other people purchase. This is where this is one of my biggest like axes to grind. Like this is where I think Marketo completely missed the boat, right? In terms of like opening up a marketplace where you could productize, you know, I don't know, uh, um, Snowflake's flow or Salesforce's flow, right? Like anyone kind of using that tool, you know, had a great nurture campaign or had a great, you know, first uh, touch motion, right? And download that and say like, hey, here's the framework, fill it in with your own content, your own messaging, so on and so forth. But this is our best practice. Because um, I love that aspect because that's all, it, it, you know, anyone in my opinion in marketing wants to do is what's this person over there doing that's that's working really well that I can then adopt. So completely agreed. And I think, you know, some of those companies that you mentioned there are great platforms that are almost built. We are the foundation here. Now you take our product and extend that into the market and then we'll give you the the cachet, the 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 personal brand in terms of how you use that product. Yeah, Notion has gone so far as to set up the infrastructure where creators can bring their content, their templates, and be discovered within the, you know, the the marketplace of of creator content. And Notion isn't taking a cut. They're not they're not saying if you get $1,000 for this template, we're going to take 10% or 20% because we, you know, we created that traffic for you and, and that ability to actually transact. A lot of companies have that, you know, philosophy because they are investing, right? Sure. And is investing in this. But Notion says, we don't want to monetize what our creators are creating. We want to help them create more value for the broader community, which they understand that that then comes back to notion well that's a really good transition into just the, the topic of partnerships in general right you know that's one of the things justin and i look for when we're going to make investments is the presence of partnership and i know you have a strong feeling about partnership i've heard in other interviews that's a partnership that gets it right like it's not just transactional it's bigger than that and i feel like in b2b SaaS, especially partnership is turned into this department with this referral fee, with this, you owe me this, and it's not really partnership. What What are you saying? I, I agree. I think there's a, there's a reckoning of the partnership 
function. And I think we're a long ways away from the vision I have for the future of partnerships. And the vision isn't that partnerships is a separate function. It is that partners are stitched and weaved into your product, your product roadmap, your product integration, your product capabilities, your product use cases. So stitched and weaved into product, stitched and weaved into marketing. So you think about when we're going to invest in X, which partners should we bring in and co-invest in X? Which partners should we actually bring into um, this use case, this campaign, and stitch and weave partners into our sales organization, um, truly designing models and comp plans and incentives around motivating that co-sell that uh, I just read something. It was the three I's. It's information, it's influence, and uh, I don't remember the third, but I should. But it was less about the lead. It wasn't the three L's, lead, lead, lead. It was more about how as 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 sales professionals, how can you share intelligence and, and, and insight and, and all of that and leverage influence. Um, and then Stitch and Weave are partners into customer success, which I think is the most underserved area, in fact, which it, it's this this fight for the retention of the customer. It's it's this concern that if I bring a partner in, then my ARR will decrease because the customer only has so much money in their budget. And it's I want to, you know, it's I want to take as much as I can for myself. And, and I get that. I understand that in particular right now in our really difficult economic economic times, when the budgets are are, are less than what they have been historically. And when we're looking at our Frankenstacks, we're looking at our tech stack mess and we're saying we need fewer tools and we're looking at uh, overlap in functionality. And so there there has to be a lot of uh, thought and, and, and value for the customer when we look at these partnerships. Yeah, I think that's that's the key right there. So when you think about, you know, like the evangelist role, it's like, it's obviously a really difficult thing to, to scale, right? Like you get unique individuals playing that role. I think partnerships are actually a way to, to scale that, that evangelist role and, and, you know, that value creation role, but it has to be rooted in value. And I think that's why partnerships is going to have such a long kind of road to toe because they like you have to fundamentally think about how your product is designed, what those other you know uh, value adds are, how do they all fit together? How do we work together? How do we sell together? How do we create that value for the customer? And starting off on that journey, it's not going to be just a real clean bolt in. Like I think a lot of organizations need to go back to the drawing board a bit and talk about what area do we own? What are those, you know, again, integration partners, value adds, services, whatever it looks like. And how do we fundamentally change and shape that offering to provide value to the customer? Because 
from the budgetary aspect that you mentioned, like the reason why so many orgs are are cutting technology, they're cutting budget, they that that value puzzle has not been assembled well for them in the past. They did get a ton of overlap. You get a ton of shelfware. You've got a ton of stuff that has never been in I mean, look at CRM, like CRM alone. Like who's happy with their Salesforce implementation? Like very few organizations. Like that's not the Salesforce problem. That's everything that should have been done to implement that solution and other integrations and right, like all those moving pieces. So there's a bad taste in the mouth. But I think to the to your point, like we've got to start proceeding on it. We got we have to start that journey. We have to get off the starting line. Um and and that fundamentally has to be rooted in how do we provide the most value to the customer? And that will get us over that hump of I don't want to bring in, you know, partner A because they're going to slow down my cycle or they're going to eat up budget that could have been mine. We have to start thinking in terms of if that if I don't bring them in, that customer either is not going to be my customer or there's a much higher propensity for churn down the road. I think that that really is how you make technology sticky. Yeah, I think you also make technology work better and realize more customer value through professional services. And whether that be delivered from your own organization in the ProServe uh, customer success functions uh, or through skilled, experienced partners, uh, that services component. And, and I'll tell you, at, at Eloqua, we wouldn't do deals without services. Uh, we, we got smart on that. That, that wasn't only the case, but we got smart on that. Because we we saw that customers who didn't go with services and training. I remember the days when it became mandatory on the order form that there had to be at least one seat of training. And it wasn't a one-time training. It was a subscription to the entire training education library, not just on the product, but how do you be a modern marketer? Right. So how do you go from the lead centricity and the individual like one off campaign to this holistic concept around multi-channel, around nurturing and scoring, around how do you actually generate pipeline that converts into close one deals? And then also, how do you look at customers and identify what are the gaps? Like there's a maturity curve. And where are our customers on the maturity curve? And what is it that could help them get higher up on the maturity curve? And oftentimes, in particular too, in new things, like I think we're going to see this in, in, in AI, and I know we are. And also, I, we're going to see some venture capital dollars, hopefully, start to, 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 to pour into uh, services organizations. This has been historically VCs have been allergic to services organizations. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, you guys know. Come on, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But also uh, allergic to services within a software company because of the margin, right? And the non-occurring aspect of it. But with something as revolutionary as AI, Right. These 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 uh, the, the software companies that are buying the AR AI a lot of times don't even understand it. Right. And if you don't understand it much like sorry, marketing automation, like if they didn't understand it, I would send them to serious decision. Right. I would want them to go and get some real fundamental like knowledge on this new way to do marketing. And with AI, 
because a lot of organizations don't understand the power, how it can transform their organization and how to, to use case specific, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, I think, around services, services partnerships being developed in, in the AI software, uh, in the AI software world. Yeah, I think that's so, you know, valuable when you pair it with something that you mentioned before, which is the maturity curve, right? Like, what does it actually look like to be at the first rung of maturity on the solution? What door does that open up, right? Like, what and what are those next steps? Like, certainly, you know, having been on the services side, like, that was the most impactful thing that we would ever put together each time we, we lit up a new software partner, which is, what does maturity actually look like on your platform? What should someone be accomplishing? Um, and that was such a different concept for a lot of, because a lot of times we would do outsource services, right? Like, so if we were, you know, performing services implementations on behalf of software provider A, for them, it was all about how many hours are you spending on each one? You know, what's the timeline? Uh, you know, it just more of that operational lift in the background. And what we would always try to challenge them with is, but what does the client need to be doing at that point? What do they need to be seeing in terms of you know, and it's early. So, you know, ROI is probably a little bit too early within that equation, but that's certainly on that, that maturity curve, right? Like, but what, what do they really need to be realizing at each stage within that journey? And I think that's, again, like partnerships, that's a, a fundamental mindset shift for a lot of organizations. Yeah. And, and if you think about it even bigger than just your maturity curve, but all the, all the, the, the things within that ecosystem, that customer ecosystem, the maturity curve shifts uh, from just your centricity of how do they become more mature uh, on your platform or your product, and it's it's more holistic of how do they be become more mature as a function as an organization, yeah. and 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 that's really where I think um, the best companies win is when it when it isn't product or company centric, but it's customer maturity centric and all the things that need to come into um, making that customer successful. And truly this is where, you know, new salespeople, they really struggle because they don't have, they don't have the, 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 I love it when a salesperson comes into a company and they've used the product, right? They're, yep. they're so happy or a marketer comes into the company and they've used the product or what have you, because they know, right. They've, they know the power of it. And, and, and they, they can then, they, they want to help others realize that. Uh, but as a new salesperson in a new industry, let's say, I could never go sell to the chief information security officer. Um, I don't, I, one, I don't know the language. I'm not passionate about it. I don't care. I mean, I care about it, but it's not what I want to talk about. Um, and so that, that, that it just is such a huge learning curve uh, for earlier stage, earlier career salespeople. Yeah, kind of thinking about like how we triangulate all the things like we've got evangelism, we've got partnerships, and we've got this kind of services component. And the thing that seems to stick to me in all three is this concept of value architecture, right? Because that's that's where everything's kind of coming together. That's what all of those roles are trying to do. And I think when we think about what the future of partnerships looks like, and that's why tapping into services orgs, services orgs don't have tangible things to sell. They have to sell on value. So there's a lot that can be learned from those types of organizations as you think about scaling partnerships, scaling evangelism of your product and service. That's a that's a big one for me. And and you know if I were thinking about cheat code as it relates to this show, 
that would be a, a little bit of a takeaway, but certainly want to hear from you as we wrap up here, what would be one of the biggest cheat codes you feel like you, you uncovered during your career, whether it's in, uh, as, as an individual contributor, an evangelist or anything in between. I mean, the, 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 the cheat code, I mean, it really is, you've got to care it, it, and, and how do you cheat your way to caring? I don't, it, it's like a fake it till you make it. I don't want to fake it. I, I actually want to tell you transparently that I don't know what I don't know, but we are going to figure this out together. And it is when I think about like early stage startups and your beta customers, we don't call them beta customers anymore. We call them design partners, right? Because you want to co-design, you want to bring these partners in to help you design. And I believe in that, right? It's, it's a, it, it is this proper expectation. Um, I advise a very early stage startup and uh, the founder is from an engineering background. Um, he, I, I have been talking to him about founder brand and founder evangelism. Uh, he's, you know, trying to figure out if, if that's something he can do. And just one, I won't name the company because I, I, I can't then tell you the customer that they just won, but they won, they won open AI as a customer. And that's wow. massive. Totally. It's massive. And so, you know, he was asking for my advice because within that organization, within open AI, they're not, they're not sure what exactly it looks like that they're um, what they're trying to design. And there's a new person that they brought in who's new to open AI. So she's learning how things work internally at open AI. And, and she's going to need help with that internal orchestration and, and, and expectation setting. And so my point was this, there has to be a ton of communication um, a ton of transparency um, that we all don't know what we don't know, and we're going to figure it out together. And we're not going to we're not going to we're not going to fail because we're going to be so um, upfront. And the other advice I gave him was: you need to bring in someone from a services perspective to be this this guide, this Sherpa, this coach um, who has frameworks and templates and models and process that they can bring and put around this design partner initiative where there's a lot of fuzzy gray, there's a lot of unknown, but you bring someone in who has this experience um, of, of more of that operational lift of running a, a, a project, right? With a timeline, roles, responsibilities, number of hours, expected deadlines, who has to do what, when, so that's, that's, that's some of the advice I give to early stage founders is, is don't try to do it alone, bring other people in and set the expectation that we don't know what we don't know, but we're going to figure it out together. Yeah. I, I mean, I would just kind of summarize that as proximity to the customer. Like that's the biggest cheat code that, that you can ever employ. Like, yeah, if you need to, obviously you want to be in a space that you care about to your point that interests you. Uh, but once you actually like walk in the shoes of, of a customer, you, you get a perspective that is so critical for sales, so critical for product. I mean, it, it really is how organizations should be designed. So I, I think that's great advice. 
Yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll tell a story of at at Eloqua we had the Eloqua Marquee Awards, and we one year we had 176 submissions for the awards in different categories. So best lead skirt lead scoring, best lead nurturing, rookie of the year, all these other all these other categories, and I had. 176 of them printed and put them, this is back in the folders and the binder day. And I read every single one of them. I was a sales rep. I was an individual quoted carrying sales rep, but I read each one of them looking for um, clues, uh, looking for uh, commonality, looking just any signal of what made this customer successful. What did they do? And a lot of that of of what did they do, and 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 we we wanted to understand what people do and how they do it, but today we think about who who's done what I'm trying to do. I want to start with that who first, but I was doing that over you know twelve fifteen years ago by reading the customer stories. And knowing who had done what and how they had done it and with whom they did it and the outcomes they achieved. So I knew a whole lot about the who and could bring that who into the earlier stage of my new buyer into their education. So I didn't have to start with Eloqua marketing automation, the product, the capabilities. I started with here's a story about a customer who has done what you're trying to do and bring that conversation, that customer conversation to the beginning. And and it's why I also love working with partners because partners had a lot of customer stories. And so you bring these these partners in early. And they can tell lots of customer stories. Starts with a customer. Yeah, I mean, Jill, you're speaking our language. <laughs> we we are on the same page. We're 100. Those customer stories, and as Justin said, the cheat code being proximity to the customer and be able to use those stories to launch you into whatever it is—a sales cycle, uh, get someone's attention, a partnership, whatever it may be—is absolutely the key. So, Jill, uh, folks can find you on LinkedIn, I assume. Jill Rowley. Anywhere else we should send them? He's omnipresent. All you have to do is mention oh. your name and she shows up. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I would say LinkedIn. I'm I'm not using Twitter anymore. I used Twitter a lot in the early days because my buyers were on Twitter. You know, sense. marketing officers, marketing leaders, they were on Twitter. And when it was new, I was part of the, like, I helped them figure out what Twitter was and how they could leverage Twitter. So for me to be able to do that, I had to do the thing that I was trying to help my customer do. So I had to figure out how Twitter worked. Um, Twitter, for a whole host of reasons, not where my buyers are today. All right. Well, Jill, thank you for joining the show. We appreciate you being on. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jill. Really fun conversation. Thank you so much.